Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr Robert Colshaw, for agreeing to this interview at the British Antarctic Survey. So first I'd like to ask you, how does the Antarctic Treaty impact scientific research in Antarctica? Hugely. Uh, without the treaty, we wouldn't have the context in which the current level of, of science can be carried out. Uh, and that was one of the main purposes of the Antarctic Treaty in the beginning. It was to preserve the continent for peace and science. And it has succeeded very well in, in doing just that. Um, one way it's helped over the last 50 years, of course, is to uh, increase the number of countries doing science in the Antarctic. It's a precondition for being a full member of the treaty that you are actively engaged in science. So those nations that wanted to join had to pay the entry for price of doing the science, okay. um, which mm -hmm. was a very good thing. Mm -hmm. So a huge impact is the answer. Um, and how important would you say the Antarctic Treaty has been as a context for those major scientific discoveries that have been made in Antarctica, for example, the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer? I'm aware Bass was doing um, ozone measurements already from 1956, but um, how important was the Antarctic Treaty as a context for, for future discoveries? Well, it was very important. Um, I suppose you have to look back at the whole context of the late 1950s, um, the, uh, the geophysical year, the international geophysical year in 57-58, um, the increased interest in the Antarctic, if you remember the great Fuchs-Hillary expedition to the South Pole in 1956, the Trans-Antarctic Expedition, that was a major world event. Uh, that plus the geophysical year, then followed just a couple of years later by the treaty, led to a massive expansion in interest in the Antarctic, mm. scientifically, politically, and in terms of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. What it meant was that a lot of nations, including Britain, used that period to, to really transform the, the physical presence in the Antarctic by putting in new infrastructure. Uh, part of that for us, for the Brits, was uh, the establishment of the base at Halley on the Brunt Ice Shelf, which is where those ozone measurements, one of the places that those ozone measurements were done, in a continuous time series, using the same instrument from the very beginning, and it's the same instrument that we're using today, in 2009. Um, and in the mid-80s, as you well know the story, um, they found the ozone hole, mm -hmm. and uh, at first were very surprised indeed. But then all the collaboration, the corroboration was done, um, and that led to uh, a, a change in the way the whole world looked at the at the atmosphere. And more important, perhaps, led to a change in the way the whole world managed its pollutants that were causing the ozone depletion. Mm -hmm. uh, and within a few years, we had the Montreal Protocol, which changed the way fridges are built and changed uh, the use of propellants and so on. Um, and the good news is that now the ozone hole is, is repairing, although it will take right. a long time. Right. So it did set the context. Without Halley, you wouldn't have had that base from which to carry out those measurements. And the reason that that's important is that where Halley is happens to be an ideal place to see the formation of the ozone hole in the spring every year. You need ground-based observations to validate what you can do by satellite. And you need to be sitting or probably standing somewhere like Halley in order to see that. So that's why it remains important today. And that's why uh, we do those measurements all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've answered already that you can be part of the treaty only if you're doing scientific research in Antarctica. Mm. I wanted to ask whether the treaty gives scientists the right to carry out research in any part of Antarctica, irrespective of the country they represent. And in particular, is there a concentration of Bass's work within the British claimed territory? 
albeit that claim is suspended, of course. Yes. Um, the first part of the question um, is easy. Yes, scientists can carry out research anywhere. And I would like to add a point there which links back to the earlier question um, about how much the treaty has contributed to science, if, if you put it mm -hmm. that way. And that is to say that um, the treaty actively encourages cooperation between nations. That's so right. rather than having little patches of Antarctica where you have Chileans or Norwegians or Brits or Americans, the treaty actively encourages cross-national, international working. And that has happened a lot. That's not just been a pious hope. It's, it's really turned out that way. And we have a huge number of, of collaborations in Bass because of that. So that, in a way, answers this question. People go wherever the science takes them in whatever grouping is going to really make sense. We've just finished some very exciting survey flying in a, in a consortium which includes, um, among others, the US, China, Australia. Um, and we, we do that all the time. We've worked with uh, virtually every Antarctic Treaty party at some point along the way. So the scientists go where the science takes them. They work in the grouping that makes sense. Having said that, the second part of your question, mm -hmm. it is true historically that our British presence, apart from Halley, was very heavily concentrated in the Antarctic Peninsula. And that is part of the British Antarctic Territory. But the reason for that is purely practical. That's the part that you could get to because it was ice-free and it's relatively close and it's much easier to get there than it is to go further down the continent or further into the interior. So that's why so many nations, not just Britain, have so many uh, flags dotted around mm -hmm. on the Antarctic Peninsula. That's not driven by science. That's driven by practicality. And in respect to Britain, how much is scientific research the basis for its territorial claim in the Antarctic? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Our claim goes back to 1908, and it was a pure, um, I almost said late Victorian, but you know what I mean, sort of 19th century in spirit, uh, territorial claim based on being there, actually mm -hmm. based on being there first. It's the first claim. Uh, and it has nothing to do with science, um, and it doesn't depend on science. So it is politics, sovereignty. But the important point to stress here is that uh, one of the great achievements of the treaty was that it put all the existing seven territorial claims into abeyance, or one could almost say into the freezer. Uh, it put them on one side. Without that, I don't think there would have been an Antarctic Treaty, because the US particularly would not have been at all happy to go ahead if, if the existing claimants, like Britain, had maintained their claims. So because have they actually abeyance. got a claim, the Americans? No, they the US have no territorial claim. But they retain the right to make a claim at some Yes, point. they retain a right oh. to make a claim. And, of course, they are sitting at the South Pole, mm -hmm. which may not be a claim, but it makes a statement. So they, uh, their interest is, is beyond doubt, but they chose not to make a claim. And all the existing claimants chose to put those on one side, but not to give them up. To come back to, to the work of Bass, well, the British Antarctic Survey came into existence about 60 years ago, and so it precedes the Antarctic Treaty by about 10 years. Um, how was the work of Bass impacted by the Antarctic Treaty when it came into force in 1961? Not enormously. Um, it, the pattern of our activities didn't change hugely. Nothing we were doing was incompatible with the treaty um, because we were doing science. Uh, the things the treaty prohibits and rather usefully prohibits, uh, military activity, 
um, nuclear, all those kind of things, we were not doing anyway. So in that sense, not. Um, there were some permitting requirements and things like that, which, which were new. But essentially, we were able to carry on um, as before. I would say that the biggest impact on the way we do our work was this increase in collaboration, which was partly driven by, certainly um, assisted by, the treaty. Whether we would have gone down that road anyway is an interesting question, probably, mm. but perhaps, not as, perhaps not as quickly. Mm -hmm. I think the treaty sort of pushed people in that direction quicker than they might have gone. And that was a very, very good thing. This, of course, is all to be seen in the sort of Cold War context and as well. This was a time when the world needed an example of cooperation and collaboration, and the Antarctic provided it. And on that point, how far would you say that the spirit of the Antarctic Treaty, that the territory be used in the interests of all mankind, effectively enters into the practice of scientific research conducted there? I think it does. I think it's uh, in the bloodstream of the scientists that go to the Antarctic, certainly true for the British Antarctic Survey. I think people who go down there know that they're working in a special place, not just because it's the coldest, windiest, driest, highest continent and all that stuff, uh, but also because... Um, it's a special place regulated by international treaty with some very clear rules. The treaty, after all, is a wonderfully short document. It, there's no right. it, unambiguous, it's clear what it says. The scientists are aware of that, and I think rather proud, actually, to have the chance to work under such enlightened and international rules. And is this something you've seen firsthand during your own visits to Antarctica? Yes, yes I have very much so, um, both in terms of our own people and the scientists that we're pleased to host. Um, on our bases, uh, on our ships, because remember science in the Antarctic is not just um, done on the bases, it's done on the ships, uh, south of 60 degrees. Um, and I've seen it also in, um, in collaborators, whether they're working with us on a permanent basis or whether they're passing through. There's a tremendous um, spirit of sort of common enterprise, of trying to answer really vital questions together. And that's a good thing, because these questions... A global. The other thing to perhaps say in this context is that Antarctic science, perhaps at one stage, uh, was seen as a sort of self-contained discipline done within an Antarctic box by specialists who compared notes with each other and uh, looked at it that way. And that is, for a long time now, has not been the case. It's very much about global science. It's about answering questions that affect us here in Cambridge where we're sitting or in Cumberland Lodge. Um, mm -hmm. or indeed in uh, remote parts of China or Australia. And I like to think that that's one of the reasons that countries cooperate so well in the Antarctic region. Finally, are there any threats to international scientific collaboration in the Antarctic? And are you concerned, for example, that there might be increasing commercial pressures being brought to bear on scientific research on the Antarctic? I don't think so. I mean, the, <laughs> the main pressure being brought to bear of that kind on research in the Antarctic is the difficulty of paying for it um, mm -hmm. because budgets are squeezed uh, not just here in Britain but um, in this period of recession that, that is difficult mm -hmm. um, the Antarctic is a very very expensive place to operate uh, getting a piece of kit or, or even a Mars bar to a really remote place in the Antarctic is a bit like putting it on the moon so the cost of deliver the delivered item or even the delivered person uh, is very high indeed, and that's true for every country that operates there, but it's especially true for those that operate in the remote places, as we do, with field camps far into the interior. Um, 
and we do a lot of that. We cover an area of uh, two million square miles um, in terms of uh, where we go. So uh, the costs are huge, and that is the single greatest pressure. And that, of course, in almost every case, is a question of taxpayer, pound or dollar or yen. In terms of commercial pressures, pressures from business, uh, I would say not. Uh, there isn't um, pressure to exploit the resources of the Antarctic because they are protected under the treaty and the environmental protocol. So it hasn't really been a problem. You could say that that's one of the great strengths of the treaty, that it has insulated or isolated the Antarctic from those kind of pressures. Well, thank you very much for those insights, Mr Coulshaw, and we look forward to hearing more from you at the conference in June. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conference. <laughs>